Little America 2, Eclectic Boogaloo. In February 1930, as Richard Byrd and Bill Haynes departed Little America and headed to take up their berths aboard the city of New York, the Admiral commented to the meteorologist, We'll be back, Bill. The meteorologist responded, Not me. Once is enough. Haynes was incorrect, and this episode we examine why. In the wake of his success at Little America, Bird remained hungry for public accolades and looked to Antarctica to earn them. With the bulk of the scientific data arising from his first Antarctic foray still unpublished, and the Great Depression seeing one in four of the American workforce unemployed, his calls for public empathy and financial support might have been laughed at derisively and correctly, but for a clever and underhanded PR tactic. Bird played the underdog card, the outsider who was going to lead America back to greatness because he wasn't like those society explorers, relying on huge handouts. Bird pitched himself as a man of the people, something he wished he could actually appear as, but an appearance he could never achieve until he lived the life. A life full of experiences which his personal fortune and servants protected him from having, and which his privileged background would have ensured he wouldn't enjoy or understand if he did. Bird was no more a man of the people than I'm a claimant to the chieftainship of the clan MacArthur. The main difference in the comparison being that Bird possessed the temerity to pretend he fit the mould because he saw some mileage in it. The chieftainship of the clan MacArthur does lie open, and while I do like wearing a kilt, pissing off a bunch of Scots who might hold a greater claim to the title, such as actually having been to or perhaps even living in Scotland, lies outside my idea of a good time. Bird's ambitions for the expedition didn't feature any big-ticket item on the scale of the polar flight of his first Antarctic foray, and the vagueness of his plans for a second Bird Antarctic expedition, combined with the ongoing effects of the Great Depression, made fundraising even more onerous than five years prior. He promoted the expedition as a means to consolidate and expand on his nation's claims to Marie Birdland, Bird maintaining a show of confidence that his territorial gambits held some validity in spite of sustained government indifference toward Antarctica as the next great expanse into which the USA might push its manifest destiny. Where people perceived Charles Lindbergh as a humble everyman who triumphed through will and determination, Bird's public image accurately reflected his background as a rich and connected sophisticate whose achievements came off the back of others. That's not entirely fair, as Bird's ability to bring together large numbers of people willing to throw themselves on the pyre of his bright, burning vision also played its part, but that's pretty much the way America perceived him in the second year of the Great Depression. Moneyed people thought him gauche and self-congratulatory, and working people, while fond of the national hero, grew weary of the constant PR campaign to promote his achievements. A brief digression about Charles Lindbergh. He was a humble man who achieved great things by will and determination, and the kidnap and murder of his son in 1932 makes his life one of the great tragedies of 20th century fame. But I don't like him because of his active support of Germany in the lead-up to and the early years of the Second World War. He never identified as a National Socialist, but what a person chooses to label themselves isn't always a one-to-one -one match for what they are. If Lindbergh wasn't a Nazi on paper, he was one in actions and rhetoric, and both US and German-based Nazis found inspiration and support in his work to keep the USA neutral as Hitler's forces overran Europe. Shitting in the soup makes all of the soup bad, 
no matter how good it would otherwise have been. By supporting National Socialist agendas and campaigning that the USA respect their actions in Europe, Charles Lindbergh shat in what otherwise would have been a most laudable soup. And I'm not telling you not to eat the soup. Fill your boots if you don't mind having soup with shit in it. That's your choice. My choice lies in deciding what I think of people willing to eat shit soup and then try to tell me that it's delicious and that you can hardly taste the shit at all. Digression over. With Hilton Rayleigh dismissed by Marie Bird as having served her husband's interests very poorly, I disagree, figuring Rayleigh went well beyond any call Bird had on him, but I hold less sway over Bird 90 years later than his wife did at the time. The second expedition had to look to less glamorous and less capable public relations outlets, Bird largely falling on his own talents for this. He was good at self-promotion, but didn't have the time or match the talent Riley previously brought to the table. John McNeil took on Riley's former role as Bird's personal representative in the USA. Partly because of the interventions of Marie Bird and Bird's secretary, Hazel McKercher, who both wanted McNeil to hold less discretionary power than Dick Brophy had done. McNeil mostly left the personal representation to Bird, leading to a similar parting of ways in the wake of the second expedition, as Bird and Riley experienced after the first. Bird dented his popularity with a sizable fraction of the US population by campaigning extensively on the behalf of the National Economy League, a body formed in the lead-up to the 1932 federal election to petition the government to cut spending by eliminating all expenditures on war veterans left disabled by their service. Because the war disabled a lot of veterans, Bird's advocacy against their support from government generated a lot of ire among veterans, disabled or otherwise, and their families and friends. The American Legion, an NGO instituted by a thousand members of the American Expeditionary Force in France in 1919, came out against Byrd and campaigned to counter his efforts on the behalf of the National Economy League. The Legion sustained its side of the fight for veterans' well-being, eventually playing the central role in drafting the GI Bill, passed into law in 1944, and continues to advocate for veterans to this day, so the National Economy League, and all who sailed in it, can stick that up their early 1930s jumper. It's hard to convince an audience of the benefits of austerity when preaching them from a position of tremendous privilege, and Bird increasingly alienated himself from the people he wanted to perceive him as their man. When it came to light that Bird received $4,000 a year in a Navy pension for injuries incurred during non-combat duties, his detractors made much mileage out of the hypocrisy. The League removed Bird from the role of spokesperson as opposition PR focused on a disability pension for an allegedly debilitating football injury in the legs of a man that regularly went to high latitudes to be all heroic on those same legs. While Bird wasn't their man in the spotlight any longer, the League's criticism of the government, whom they blamed for the depression, claiming it resulted from excessive government spending rather than wild speculation on and confidence in the stock market, helped alienate Bird from powerful friends in high places. President Roosevelt eventually refusing to give the birds the time of day where once they enjoyed regular visits with Franklin and Eleanor. His activities with the League saw Bird delay his Antarctic plans by a whole year, relieving him of some of the stresses he encountered in trying to get moving on the slow to mount up funds. Cash donations of $150,000 came into the coffers in 1932 and 33 
Large contributors to this amount arose from Bird's cadre of rich patrons and business associates. Edsel Ford, William Horlick, malted milk magnate, Jakob Rupert, brewer, and the National Geographic Society key among them. But smaller quantities came in from thousands of individuals, in spite of Bird not starting a GoFundMe or Kickstarter page. General Foods donated more boxes of grape nuts than anyone would likely feel happy about if they'd ever taken a mouthful of the stuff, expecting significant product placement in photographs and broadcasts. Purina donated large volumes of dog pemmican, with a similar expectation of increased sales off the back of Bird boosting public brand awareness. Former Little American machinist Victor Schäger accepted the role of Expedition General Manager and applied the methodical mode of his trade to compiling a comprehensive list of necessary materials based on his experience at Little America and checked against the manufacturer's catalogue to ensure no trifling article remained unheralded, and then bringing those materials together. Ensconced in a naval warehouse in Boston, Schäger oversaw a flurry of phone calls and correspondence reaching into the tens of thousands of contacts, seeking support in kind and financial donations. Bird claimed that with free favourite and cheaper close runner-up, Strager didn't give up on a manufacturer or supplier until at least the 43rd knockback, admitting he didn't understand Strager's reasoning behind that particular figure as the cutoff, and happily characterising his team as the world's hardest working beggars as part of his PR campaign. $100,000 worth of scientific equipment became available, and Mackay Radio and Telegraph supplied the hardware necessary to connect the expedition to the outside world through the Antarctic night in the most direct manner to date. Fellow explorer, Dr Hamilton Rice, lent Bird the expertise of his own radio man, T.S. Caleb, to begin making trail and base radio sets out of the donated materials. The Tidewater Oil Company donated fuel for the ships, aircraft, tractors and generators. Armour and Company donated pemmican for trail parties and a large supply of processed and preserved food for winter quarters staff. Paul Seipel, Kenneth Rawson and Pete Damas, who interrupted his studies for a fourth time on Bird's behalf, between them fielding experience on six high-latitude bird expeditions, and a team of around 100 volunteers joined Jager's efforts and gradually pulled together an expedition's worth of vittles and equipment out of the Depression-era ether. Though snow goggles seem to have slipped through the gaps for a second time, somehow. Harold June's deference and loyalty to Bird on the first Antarctic expedition saw him rewarded with the role of chief pilot for the new project. While Bird's 1930 antics ensured he and Balkan never worked together again, Bird took umbrage that his former friend and Masonic nominate took up with Hubert Wilkins for an Ellsworth-funded project to fly across the entire Antarctic continent, but there wasn't much Bird didn't take umbrage at, so that's nothing special. As mentioned in episode Tumpty Tum, Professor Lawrence Gould made some perfunctory noises about returning to Little America to continue the scientific work, going so far as to contact Paul Seipel and Bernd Balkan to request their assistance. But with his academic career calling and Bird playing hide the responsibility for declining Gould's request to use his former base, the project never got off the blocks. This came as a relief for Paul Seipel, who was weighing his loyalty to Bird against his respect for the scientific credentials and personal MO of Gould.
Distressed about, but unable to do anything to prevent, the Ellsworth expedition going ahead. Bird sent its leader a flag he'd carried with him on board the Floyd Bennett as it circled the South Pole. Ellsworth gave full thanks for this gesture, but I think he missed the motive behind it. You go south with my blessing. Love, the Mayor of Antarctica. Bird railed against Ellsworth taking Balkan, quote, Who got his Antarctic knowledge with me? Of all the petulant claims Bird ever made, that one stands alone as a unique and perfect example of unwarranted dummy spitting. Balkan already held more knowledge about high-latitude survival and aviation than Bird ever possessed before they met. Bird's successes in the Arctic and Antarctica largely arose from Balkan's involvement, and to claim Balkan's talents as rightfully belonging to anyone other than Balking is fucking rich. Bird's bellyaching about Balkan working for someone else is largely a matter of hoping to deprive a competitor of a tremendous advantage they might freely avail themselves of if they don't think Antarctica needs or has a mare. Bird wrote to Ellsworth to assure the only other remaining member of the Polar Legion that the Ellsworth expedition had his wholehearted support, no matter what scurrilous things people might be saying about Lincoln's motives and machinations. What's that? No, I haven't heard anyone bad-mouthing you, but whenever I do, I defend you to the hilt against their factually accurate but nonetheless unwarrantedly defamatory statements about your qualities. Bird claimed to have in his possession a letter from, quote, one of the greatest organisations in the country and signed by one of the most brilliant men I know, unquote, prophesying public disaster if the two expeditions headed south at the same time. I first read Lyle Rose's biography of Richard Bird five years ago, and I thought the passage recounting this bluff must have come through as a snowballed version of some less egregiously stupid gambit. But after 2016, I don't put it past an egomaniac to cantilever many more unsubstantiated clauses towards their goal than Bird did in that instance. Bird sent letter after letter to Ellsworth, trying to keep the field to himself. But Ellsworth had his own dark clockwork winding him up, and all entreaties to play the game, and keep it sacred between us, fell on deaf or at least indifferent ears. Changing tack, Bird tried to dissuade Ellsworth from his planned path by mapping how even a small expedition could quickly become very expensive. And while that is true, telling it to a man with as much independent wealth as Lincoln Ellsworth didn't hold much dissuasive power. Another change of tack. If someone should precede Bird and do the only spectacular thing left to do in Antarctica, it would ruin the bird's family fortune and prospects. That's only going to work if the target cares that bird remains solvent, which Ellsworth didn't. Bird returned to attacking Balkan's presence in Ellsworth's crew, citing him as highly competent and good company, but not as entirely responsible for bird's success in the south as some people made out, and nowhere near as loyal as bird desired, hinting that Balkan's head had been turned from the true path of birdie and fealty by dark actors remaining unnamed. Trying to dissuade someone from making use of Balkan's competence by making unsubstantiated hints that a secret cabal unfairly swayed Balkan's affections away from Bird is a very long stretch. Ellsworth finally responded to the full swathe of Bird's entreaties with a simple missive explaining that since Bird hadn't clearly stated that he was going south in 1932, he saw no reason that his own expedition should not make a start. All complications arising from two expeditions occupying the field were null until there actually were 
two expeditions occupying the field. Bird hadn't even selected an aircraft in which to attempt the Antarctic crossing at that point. Ellsworth also delayed his expedition by a year, but it wasn't because Richard Bird asked for a fair shake of the stick. At the same time, Bird was writing to Balkan about how people must have poisoned the Norwegian against him, that he would consider doing or saying anything that didn't serve Bird's interests. Unable to pass what Bird wanted from him, and already with more than enough reasons to distance himself from Bird without some secret cabal working against the Admiral, Balkan didn't respond. Still unable to prevent Ellsworth heading south, Bird changed tack yet again, sending some of Norman Vaughan's ski boots on spec and one of Stjager's excellent trail cookers at Ellsworth's request, determined not to be called out as churlish and unhelpful should anything go wrong with his competitors' efforts. I think in his mind, Bird withholds cooker that would otherwise have saved the lives of Ellsworth and Balkan was as bad as Bird literally shits pants at prospect of flying in terms of ignominious headlines. Following the formal announcement of Bird's intention to head south in September 1933, former fellow expeditioners Noville, Johansson and Peterson joined the gradually coalescing winter party. Expert skier Finn Ronnie, son of Martin Ronnie, sailmaker under Amundsen's Arctic and Antarctic expeditions and Bird's Antarctic foray, and whose surname I mispronounced previously, signed on. Martin Ronnie died just shy of a year before his son sailed on Bird's second Antarctic trip. Bird's stupid little dog, Igloo, died about a year after returning from Antarctica, and so numbered among the majority of past Little Americans not heading back for a second serve, though only Igloo and Martin Ronnie weren't joining the expedition for that excellent excuse of being dead. Surprise inclusions included meteorologist Bill Haynes, who overcame his previously stated disposition to never return to the ice, and the Weather Bureau's reluctance to release him for same, this latter being put down to the influence of Senator Harry Byrd by Byrd biographer Lyle A. Rose, and Surveyor Quinn Blackburn, whose unwillingness to heed trail instructions during the establishment phase of Little America in 1929 saw him repeatedly reprimanded, lost in a blizzard, and demoted to stevedore duties, where he received the almost but not quite permanent crush injuries to his leg, when a drum of fuel rolled over him. Did not expect him to get another Guernsey. Wartime fighter pilot and Royal Canadian Mountie, Alan Innes Taylor, joined as an expert dog driver. Physicist Professor Thomas Poulter was teaching at Iowa Wesleyan University when he accepted an astronomy role in Bird's expedition. As an interesting footnote, Poulter was mentor to, and an inspiring influence on, the young James Van Allen, after whom the radiation belt around the Earth was named. Geologist Al Wade applied for the expedition, but with the geological roles already filled by Blackburn and Seipel, he didn't get a berth. He twice dropped into Bird's offices in Boston, where Bird applied Virginian hospitality in the form of tea and cake, and taken by Wade's enthusiasm to join his project, offered him a role in the loading and unloading processes in New Zealand and on the ice. Geologists are right up there with marine ecologists in terms of travelling and working on their own coin in order to experience particular places and phenomena, and Wade, underemployed in his chosen field during the Depression years, leapt at the opportunity to work like a stevedore, 
free of charge for the chance to see some Antarctica. The parallels with the many talented and highly educated people I've met doing menial work at McMurdo Station made Wade's tale resonate for me. Professor Earl Perkins from Rutke University joined as biologist, Alton Lindsay joining as his assistant. Vernon Boyd came on the books as machinist, Victor Steger's health issues making another winter in Antarctica unlikely. Ike Schlossbach, survivor of Hubert Wilkins' attempt to get a submarine under the Arctic sea ice, joined as a general hand for the first of many voyages to Antarctica. Dr. Charles Gill Morgan joined as seismologist. Gordon Fountain, the son of a friend of Norman Vaughan, tried to join after Vaughan showed him over one of the ships, and in spite of working hard in the preparation for departure, didn't get a berth, though short-handedness in New Zealand led to his joining after the first trip south. Charles Murphy, ghostwriter of much of Bird's copy in the wake of the first Antarctic expedition, signed on as chief publicist, the role previously filled by Russell Owen. Most hands came from US stock, but Bob Young was British, and Dr Pataka, who takes the stage later in our saga, was a New Zealander. With the 1932 election squared away, and Bird no longer focusing on hypocritically trying to deprive disabled veterans of their government support, the Roosevelts dropped their reservations regarding socialising with the Birds, an invitation to dine at the White House shortly before the expedition departed, coming the Birds' way via Eleanor. British government diplomats in the USA asked if Byrd's territorial claims were being taken seriously, but their diplomatic counterparts diplomatically refused to discuss the matter beyond that American citizens were free to do in Antarctica as they saw fit. The US government weren't buttressing Byrd's claims, but they weren't undermining them either. The British Foreign Office didn't push the matter any further, concerned that to demand clear answers might see them receive answers they didn't like, and to which they would need to formulate a response. Vagueness served their bureaucratic imperative nicely by maintaining the inertial status quo. New Zealand officials felt piqued that Byrd intended once more working in the Ross dependency, operating aircraft and operating radio sets without consulting them. The USA refused to acknowledge territorial claims in Antarctica, so to seek permission to fly, broadcast or live in the New Zealand-administered space, or to adhere to New Zealand regulations about flying and broadcasting, might be perceived as granting the claim to the Ross Dependency tacit validity. Isaiah Bowman of the American Geographic Society was very eager that the USA should make territorial claims and actively manage claimed areas in Antarctica, and advised Byrd extensively on where such interests were best served in this new expedition. Bowman felt the area to the east of the Ross Sea, being the least explored and entirely unclaimed, held the greatest potential territorial return per unit effort. If Byrd could survey that region, and Bowman could convince the government to turn Byrd's private claims into official ones, the USA might be able to bring as much as a quarter of the continent into its remit. Byrd decided to manage Little America very differently on his second stay. Viewing his previous vacillation between cloistered bridge player and boisterous drunk as gauche and mercurial, he determined to hold a steady officer's line this time. Present, but removed. Delegating orders through his immediate underlings. 
while past fellow campaigners retained the privileges of familiarity. Byrd intended eating separately to his men and keeping clear of much of Little America's social life. He wanted to present a consistent and dependable show of readily identifiable and even-handed authority. Whether or not he achieved that, you'll have some idea in a bit. Byrd also intended running Little America as a dry base this time around, alcohol only going ashore for medical purposes, and this too you'll soon be able to assess. Given the parlous state of the coffers, it's fortunate for Byrd that the shipping board, an actual government body and not the surly conclave of Little America malcontents recounted in episode 75, oversaw the large numbers of war surplus freighters no longer able to turn a profit plying the Atlantic. With some string pulling from Senator Harry Bird, the oil-burning, steel-hulled Pacific Fur came the expedition's way for a dollar a year, receiving the new name Jacob Rupert to honour one of Bird's backers. With the city of New York relegated to a museum barge celebrating Bird's first Antarctic expedition and wearily following its towboat from port to port, Bird sought to buy the Bear, a wooden-hulled Arctic Coast Guard veteran, a polar bear as its figurehead. The bear retired from the Coast Guard in 1928 and lay at rest at a government berth after a period in service to the city of Oakland, California. Early in its Arctic career, the bear became famous for going to the rescue of the six gaunt survivors of Greeley's tragic expedition at Cape Sabine and for showing up to collect the survivors of the Carluk. See episode 52. Since its 1880s heyday, the bear received internal buttressing, a sheath of Australian iron bark, and an auxiliary steam unit, and spent her career policing Arctic whaling and the Yukon gold rush traffic. Being a public service vessel, the bear had to go up for public auction. A gentleman's agreement that no one would bid on the boat but bird was gazumped by a scrap merchant who opened bidding at $1,000 and quickly found himself receiving a talking to though whether bribes or knuckles were profit, I don't know, and the expedition got its ice ship for $1,050. Bird added of Oakland to the ship's name to illustrate his gratitude to the city authorities, but everyone called it the Bear regardless of what it said on the bow. A volunteer crew sailed the Bear to join the Rupert in the Navy Yards in Boston for overhaul to Antarctic spec, also largely carried out by volunteer labour. Where previously people threw more airframes than his first Antarctic expedition could usefully take south, no one was willing to donate a whole aircraft to this second outing. Instead, Bird and Sieger cajoled manufacturers into donating components to reduce the price of a factory-fresh Curtis Condor, slated to act as the main aviation workhorse. Where the Ford Trimotor clawed its way skyward under the prompting of three Wright Cyclone engines, the Condor used only two each supercharged to provide an improved 725 horsepower. I think Bird must have really been up against the financial stops when this purchase went through, as the Curtis Condor, with its fabric-skinned biplane wings, barely took aviation technology beyond that developed during the First World War. Bluff-bowed and featuring the drag-inducing bracing wires of its predecessors from previous decades, the Condor was Curtis's answer to America's call for long-distance air travel but it came on the market in an era when stressed skin monocoque designs such as the Boeing 247 and in just a couple of years the Douglas DC-2 
would leave biplane counterparts behind, both in the air and in sails. The Curtis Condor did feature two nods to modernity, one in the form of variable pitch propellers, able to shift between the optimum angles of attack for takeoff and cruising, and thereby making the most of the engine power and the available fuel at all points in the flight. The other in the form of a retractable undercarriage, though the improvement in overall aerodynamics brought about by tucking the wheels into the engine nacelles during flight made this the technological equivalent of putting lipstick on a pig, and not on its lips. That Antarctic use required the fitting of floats or skis in place of the wheels made this feature redundant anyway. I suspect Bird approached the manufacturers of the newer, sleeker, more capable designs and couldn't negotiate terms the expedition could meet, and that Curtis sold him their Condor on the cheap because no one else wanted to buy one. Bird used a donation from his friend William Horlick to make the purchase, and the airframe received his name in gratitude. While slow and ugly, the 10-tonne lifting capacity of the Condor made it just on capable, if fitted with long-range fuel tanks, of making a continental crossing on a line between Peter I Island and Little America. Other airframes came Bird's way on loan. Car manufacturing magnate Alfred P. Sloan contributed his personal aerial ride, a Fokker Universal, similar to the one wrecked on the barrier in the previous expedition, but for its wings sitting parasol style atop a cabane of struts to improve some aspect of performance I can't fathom. The Fokker bore the name Blue Blade. A Fairchild Pilgrim, a scaled-up utility version of the aerial photography mount Bird previously took south and named Miss American Airways, came in from American Airways. Finally, a Kellett autogyro called Pep Boy's Snowman and a young pilot able to fly the unusual machine were made available by the Pep Boy's Auto Parts Company of Philadelphia. An autogyro is a rotary wing aircraft which takes advantage of the hard-to-stall nature of a continuously moving wing, allowing very short takeoff and landing runs, but unlike a helicopter, the rotor is driven by forward airspeed and not the engine, negating the need to counter the torque reactions helicopters generate in pushing their lifting rotors around. Autogyros aren't as versatile as helicopters, but they're easier to fly and require less maintenance hours per hour spent flying, so they enjoyed a brief spell of popularity in the period before Igor Sikorsky got his shit together for the second time and gave the world the first mass-manufactured helicopter. Whether you rate or rock autogyros, the Pep Boy Snowman constitutes the first of many, many rotary wing aircraft to head to Antarctica. Its pilot, the 18-year-old Bill McCormick, learnt to fly on leaving school through the mentorship of his brother Joe stand-in father figure after their dad died when Bill was just four. Lindbergh's example inspired Joe's aviation career and the two brothers made a living flying parachutists and photographers around Atlantic City. The brothers bought their autogyro in preparation for the 1933 airshow circuit and it was Kellett himself who recommended Bill to his friend Bird. Unable to afford an autogyro on the expedition budget, Bird borrowed this one from the Pep Boys. In 1928, at the age of 13, Bill McCormick threw his hat in the ring to be the Boy Scout Bird took south with his first Antarctic expedition, so it was a big deal for him to land an aviation role in the second Antarctic outing of his high-latitudes hero, Admiral Bird. 
where previously Edsel Ford contributed the main aircraft and a car converted into a snow tractor. In this iteration of Birdie and Adventures, he only supplied two cars converted into snow tractors. Bird's relationship with Paramount Pictures faltered after the modest success of With Bird in the Antarctic didn't please either party. But during a dinner with Louis B. Mayer, during which Bird espoused that in better understanding what a good movie required, he would arrange for his expedition to face more ice, do more flying, and generate more news in order to provide the studio with, quote, the proper kind of movie. Paramount assigned John Herman and Carl Peterson as camera operator and sound recorder respectively. The US Postal Service contracted with Bird to establish a post office at Little America, able to sell postal covers and expedition stamps. Two expedition members were sworn in as US Postal Officers, making the cancellation of stamps at Little America the first official US government business slated for Antarctica. This concerned the British Foreign Office. The British Ambassador in Washington DC told the US State Department that the issuing of Little America commemorative stamps and their franking in the Ross Dependency infringed British sovereignty. But his US counterparts countered by stating the US didn't recognise British sovereignty in Antarctica. French car manufacturer and bird admirer, André Citron, contributed half-tracks. Like the Autogyro, a half-track is a hybrid vehicle of a type that gained some market traction in a period where almost everything being shitbox hid the worst of their flaws. Caterpillar tracks driven by a 22-horsepower gasoline engine provided the propulsion, and wheels mounted on car-type steering assemblies controlled direction. The steering wheel made learning to drive one easier for people already accustomed to automobiles than was the case for other Caterpillar tracked vehicles, and some of Citron's half-tracks were already engaged in a transit across the Gobi Desert. Fitting skis in place of the wheels on the steering assemblies would adapt the machines to snow use, and Citron donated three units to the expedition. The Cleveland Tractor Company, which provided Hubert Wilkins with the bulldozer used in attempts to flatten a runway out of the hard ground of Deception Island, donated a Cleetrack unit capable of hauling 20,000 pounds, filling out the heavy hauling end of the mechanical ground transport. Three cows, on loan from the Guernsey Cow Club, went into stalls on the forward deck of the Rupert, the first bovines to head to Antarctica unbutchered, setting their handler, Carpenter Cox, a lot of work in marginal conditions for the sake of fresh milk. Norman Vaughan returned to the birdfold to arrange the purchase of 50 Alaskan sled dogs of the type used on the previous expedition, 76 of the heavier Labrador Huskies and 30 Manitoba Huskies, the heaviest of those canines taken south and allegedly descended from Shackleton's dogs. Vaughan returned to his advertising business before the expedition departed and chief dog wrangling and veterinary duties fell to Alan Innes Taylor. On the 6th of September, the birds dined with the Roosevelts. No paper record of the dialogue exists, but Bird later claimed to Lewis Johnson, Secretary of Defence to President Truman at the time Operation High Jump 2 was getting shit-canned, that he and Roosevelt discussed a possible comprehensive aerial mapping program in Antarctica and how that might promote American claims on the continent. I don't doubt the topic was discussed, but I do doubt Roosevelt's side of the matter comprised more than asking an expert how such a project might be carried out, 
not asking Bird to actually make a start. Either way, Bird didn't have an airframe suited to the task. The Bear left Boston on the 25th of September under the command of Lieutenant Robert English of the United States Navy. The Rupert left on the 11th of October under Captain Verliger with Commander Hjalmar Gjertsen of the Norwegian Navy, who previously visited Antarctica while in command of the Fram for Roald Amundsen, and later in charge of a factory whaling vessel, hired as ice pilot. As happened to the Terranova two decades earlier, and the Eleanor Bowling during the Bird Antarctic Expedition version 1, the Bear met huge seas during its transit south. Repeated swamping saw the water in the bilges rising faster than the pumps could keep pace against. As the water passed into the machinery spaces, the engineers took turns wading chest deep in the internalised Atlantic to clear tarry coal sludge from the pump intakes. As the water reached the engine room, forcing the ship to stop engines and pump clearing duties became impossible. A bucket chain formed in a last ditch attempt to keep the ship at the top of the sea, and this frantic and miserable work carried on for several hours until Lieutenant English gained the frying pan shoals and dropped anchor in their lee. The Bears' head start came to naught when the Jakob Rupert caught her up in Newport News, dry docked to make good the damage done by the hurricane winds and the corresponding waves. On the 22nd of October, after receiving the airframes on her weather deck, the Rupert headed for the Panama Canal and the freshly repaired Bear followed on the 1st of November. The total complement of the expedition at this point numbered 115 men. During the Pacific leg of the voyage, Bird received unwelcome news from the War Department, whose extensive testing of the newfangled variable pitch propellers fitted to the Curtis Condor revealed structural weaknesses when operated for long periods. The ship carried the fixed pitch propellers originally fitted to the stock model Condor, but without the ability to optimise the propellers to each stage of the flight, the Condor lacked the range to make the epic cross-continental flight. Fixed pitch propeller designs have to account for all stages of flight and in trying to provide power at low speeds during takeoff and at high speeds during cruising, compromise their performance in both situations. Unwilling to risk the fatalities likely to accompany any structural failure in one of the two variable pitch propellers while the Condor flew across the continent, Bird adapted his plans and the Rupert changed course from Peter I Island to Wellington, New Zealand. A brief stay at Easter Island saw the scientists stranded ashore during a storm one night with two chickens to feed a dozen men and no shelter or bedclothes to see them through the cold and wet darkness. Binoculars, cigarettes and hats disappeared as the islanders seized this rare opportunity to increase their material wealth. Bird noting the thefts occurred with disarming innocence and uncanny skill. Local backs bent in aid of rowing the shoreboat and its occupants back to the Rupert, but at the earliest opportunity, the impoverished inhabitants made off with everything they could purloin, including the rollocks, which made the final leg out to the ship a matter of setting overcoats and shirts as sails. Digression about theft. I'm not about to pontificate about the islanders being light-fingered. I come from a nation colonised by people deported mostly for petty thefts as a means for Britain to thin the burgeoning underclasses, and populate a faraway and unloved imperial outpost, mostly as a means to preclude the French taking up residence, and Australians continue to treat each other's property with a vague notion that all wealth is common, 
until it falls into my hands, at which point anyone trying to take it from me had better watch out. I've experienced several losses to theft in my life, but two that bewilder me far more than contemplating what people without a boat might want with Rolex. In the late 1990s, a colleague and I, watcher Brian, deployed 200 starfish traps around the circumference of Port Phillip to see if we could detect the invasive marine pest species Asterius amurensis. Turns out it was present in our waters, but we didn't find out that by our track program because we only ever got two of them back. Somewhere out there, rusting away in 198 backyards, lie those missing traps, useless for anything other than catching starfish. My fellow Australians saw a made thing lying unregarded. They hauled it up by its tether and they took it home, likely remaining as bewildered by its design 20 years on as they were the day they pinched it. The second theft is the one I really don't understand. While I was working in trauma cleaning, I regularly clean up the mess left in the wake of unattended death. It doesn't take long for a human body to go very runny and to become very smelly once homeostasis halts, and the solution to most of the problems it causes is to remove everything the resulting fluids came into contact with and incinerate it in a high temperature disposals unit. Furniture, carpet, underlay, floorboards, floor joists, and even the soil beneath the building sometimes need to be removed to bring a site to a biologically safe and odour-free state. Late one afternoon, literally wrapping up after a long session dealing with such a situation, my workmate came back into the building forming our worksite that day, ashen-faced. What's up? I inquired. I had that really wet piece of carpet laid out on the plastic, and when I ducked into the van to get the tape, some joker rolled it up and walked away with it. Bullshit. What are you trying to pull? No joke. Go look. I ducked out the door, past the empty but fluid smeared plastic sheeting, and onto the street. There, in the middle distance, some guy wandering away with a putrescine impregnated rug rolled up and carried at the port. I returned to my colleague, likely wearing a similar expression and pallor. Either he's mad, messed up, or life at home is so bad that that carpet constitutes an improvement. Whatever the story, I'm not interfering. Digression on the digression. Working in marine science and associated educational avenues, I'm regularly upbraided for using the word starfish as a collective label for members of the Asteroidia. They're not fish, Matt. They're sea stars. Your use of that word is misleading to the punters. They're not masses of incandescent gas either, you dolt, I reply. If people can't look at radially symmetrical, headless lumps of calcium carbonate and connective tissues and conclude that it's something other than piscine, there's likely not much use in my trying to pass anything on to them. They do have a point though. So in case you're confused, seahorses aren't ungulates, you can't clinch a nail with a hammerhead shark, and the Spanish dancers you find in the sea will not bring you to tears with their passionate flamenco. Technically correct is the best kind of correct but I sometimes suspect some of my colleagues are using their position of knowledgeable authority as an excuse for being pedantic arseholes when, and only when, it suits them. The bear made for Tahiti to bunker coal. Oceanographer Ruse sounding her track with a sonar unit every five minutes, adding 600 depth measurements to a region of the South Pacific, formerly characterised by just 14 soundings with a shot line. Mid-Pacific, a hurricane hit the bear, and riding light with only 30 tonnes of coal in the bunkers, the green water washing over her worked the timbers to the point the pumps once more barely kept up with the incoming water.
Aboard the Rippert, the sea voyage offered time for the physicists, Bramhall and Zoon, to begin their cosmic ray measurements and for the dog drivers to work up individually tailored harnesses for the dogs. Strager, Ronnie and Tingleoff assembled sledges, lashing the Nansen pattern pieces together with rawhide and working linseed oil into the wood to keep it supple during the dry rigours of Antarctic travel. The aviators spent time removing fixtures and fittings from the air transports to lighten their takeoff weights and to make space for survival gear and additional fuel, lagging the fuel lines against the cold and fitting sun compasses and other nods to high latitude navigation. Radio operators set about assembling the smaller sets and fitting them to the aircraft and rigging the aerials and antennae attendant on the state-of-the-art electrical communication and navigation systems. One dog jumped the gunwale and four others died of various maladies during the transit to New Zealand, but otherwise the Rupert arrived in good fettle on the 5th of December. In Wellington, the engineers sought to remedy a nasty knock that developed in the Rupert's engine, and the aviation contingent assembled the William Horlick, swapping out the suspect propellers for the more reliable but less efficient ones and attaching the outer wings. The Curtis Condor went back aboard entire, but with its wings sticking out dangerously far over waters drawn dangerously close by the heavy load the ship carried. Bird noted the 27 feet between the surface and the lower wings as sufficient to guarantee safety, but anyone who knows the Southern Ocean will laugh at this paper optimism. If attaching the wings at a later point in proceedings were possible, Bird would write doing exactly that up as laudably prudent. But with the William Horlick expected to provide aerial reconnaissance before the ship reached the Bay of Wales, he needed to risk having the wings torn off in big seas. As with the aircraft fluid lines, the engineers lagged the steam pipes and hoses leading to the deck winches, hoping to keep everything working in the cold that lay ahead. Bird requested the purser recruit nine local volunteers to help unload the Ripper at the Bay of Wales and to aid in sailing the ship back to Dunedin. But a day out of Wellington, an all-hands meeting revealed that the volunteer contingent actually ran to 18, Dr Shirley having erred in his recruitment drive. As the ship only carried food enough for the job at hand and a small reserve, this placed the Vittles under pressure, a situation not helped by the discovery of three stowaways in one of the lifeboats. The extra hands also placed bedding at a premium, and people took to hot bunking, sleeping in the recently vacated and still warm bed of someone working in alternate watch. When the bear radioed to report the discovery of two stowaways on departing Tahiti and requesting instructions, the response advised they return to Papaiti to collect one more stowaway as the Rupert was one up on them. Passing into the 60s, the Rupert encountered seas rough enough to pose existential threat to the William Horlick. Waves rode up the sides of the ship fit to damage the wings and the control surfaces flapped violently in the strong wind. Lieutenant English put the ship head to wind, the ship's superstructures offering the airframe some lee shelter, while June led the aviation contingent in the dangerous task of passing canvas adhesive tape over and under the wings to prevent the control surfaces oscillating themselves to pieces. At one point, the Condor's airspeed indicator indicated an airspeed of 70 knots, more than enough to see the airframe airborne were it not dogged down to the deck. Regular washes of green water over the weather deck saw the carefully applied asbestos lagging torn from the steam pipes. 
As the ship nosed south, the deck crew set all the winches turning slowly in the hope that the constant flow of steam through the pipes might prevent them and the winch axles freezing. On the 19th of December, the lookout spotted the first iceberg and Klondike, one of the Guernsey cows, gave birth to a bull calf that took its name from that sighting. Cox and Clark wanted the calf born below the circle, but Klondike wouldn't heed their desires, and the birth ran its course 300 miles north of that auspicious latitude, but still considerably further south than any previous carving of that kind. There's a particularly moving paragraph about icebergs in Discovery, the expedition account accredited to Admiral Byrd, and I quote it here in its entirety. It is so meaningless to call them sentinels. They are much more than that. They are mobile extensions of the Antarctic itself, stately white caravels afloat on a painted sea, a sky-filling architecture schemed and wrought by nature from the marble quarries of the Ice Age. On some we saw, the whole of Manhattan could have been disposed even to its subways. Beyond the rose-flaming horizon lay the undiscovered coast, from which the glacial pressure piling up from behind, and the tidal movements working from below, had wrenched these bergs. Now, in the persuasive sway of submarine currents, they drifted softly toward extinction. In these waste waters sailed a doomed fleet, the fairest that ever put to sea. Nice. The ship met the pack on the 20th of December, just shy of the circle, at 151 degrees west, deliberately further west of previous approaches to Antarctica and the Ross Sea region, as Byrd wanted to cover new ground in his approach to his old patch. He ordered June, Bolan, Peterson and Pelter make ready for a reconnaissance flight in the William Horlick at the earliest opportunity. Dyer and Bailey installed a radio direction finding loop and the associated instrumentation so as to allow the aircraft to home in on a radio signal should it lose its way in poor weather or over moving ice, and the seamen craned the condor onto the water. Fueling up the aircraft took place on the water, as the combined weight of the airframe and its gasoline would have overtaxed the crane and could have upset the ship's writing moment. Lucky punters pumped each fluid ounce of fuel from drums in the motor launch up to the wing-mounted fuel tanks, where it was strained through chamois cloths to remove contaminants, before going in the filoneck. When Bill Haynes determined the weather looked sufficiently stable, Bird joined the aircrew aboard the Condor. June fired up the engines and got them airborne on a stretch of water to leeward of a large iceberg. Being the first flight of the season, he spent an hour running preliminary checks on the Condor's performance and swinging the aircraft's compass by overflying the ship from all directions, while Commander Gertsen held a steady southerly course according to his maritime gyro compass. Sun compasses work well enough, but only if you can see the sun, and Bird wanted a variation corrected magnetic heading available if the weather closed in on them while they stretched their airborne legs. The exploratory flight ran 180 nautical miles south of the Rupert, eating into the reserve fuel allocation, making it something other than a reserve, I guess. Typical bird mode to ignore the principles of sound practice in order to further his most pressing need. In this case, pressing as far south as possible in hope of finding the as yet unseen coast. Improved radio technology allowed voice transmissions where previously the Morse key took the communication load, and unless the Norwegian voyages featured similar radio sets, 
This counts as the first use of the now standard means of air-to-ground communication in Antarctica. No land came to view, and the pack continued unbroken as far south as their aerially extended vision could see. Bird received a radio direction bearing from the ship when clouds obscured the sun, and the flight returned north, landing safely but with its dynamo on its last legs. Dyer, finding it having torn itself apart under the considerable load placed on it during the flight by the radio sets. On the 21st of December, facing extensive pack, the ship shat itself, losing the use of its gyro compass and one of its gensets. The following day, the falling barometer presaged strong winds and heavy swell that saw the Rupert enter an area that earned the name the Devil's Graveyard a region of haunting fogs and fraught encounters with challenging ice conditions. One of the dogs, driven by canine calenture, boredom, or one of those doggy whims that comes across our four-legged friends occasionally, leapt overboard while being exercised on the foredeck. Dog paddling in the chilly waters, Olaf the husky evaded capture by Dustin, who went in after him on a heaving line. Fortunately, Olaf swam into the plume of water discharged by the ship's engine cooling system and cut donuts there until a boat could launch and reach him, though he was as near dead as a dog can get, without actually ending up fed to the other dogs. A brief digression here. It's from Bird's account of the expedition that I derived that Olaf survived in the plume from the engine heat exchanger, but I'm not sure about this. I don't think an oil-fired, steam-driven ship operating that far south would require much heat exchange with the outside world beyond that already going up the funnel. I think it's likely that Olaf survived in the sewage plume, but that Bird didn't want to acknowledge such a distasteful happenstance, no matter how fortuitous it might be. As mentioned in episode 80, ships only relatively recently stopped using a seat suspended over the bullocks as the preferred mechanism for seeing human wastes into the sea, and it's even more recently that regulations required anything more than a pipe from the toilet just shy of the waterline, and anywhere other than environmentally sensitive areas, that's largely still the go for people on the go, with perhaps a macerator unit to cut the toilet paper and chunky bits up to a tastefully discreet off-colour slurry before ejection. One of the rare happy moments I spent aboard the most vomit-inducing of research vessels, the RV Munida, arose when the skipper lost his hat over the side and spent a few minutes trying to retrieve it with a boat hook. Several near misses saw him encouraged that he would succeed in his mission, but he lost interest when the septic tank chose that moment to purge itself. The inverted hat, floating just far enough off the hull to place it square in the path of the ejector pipe, received almost exactly a brain's worth of macerated distant memories from the supermarket meat pies that so often served as the lunch served on that vessel. Chris lost interest in retrieving his headwear, put the boat in gear and brought the revs up to get us moving leaving the hat spinning in our wake, but still buoyant enough to not lose much of its burden. Memories. A foggy but cheerful Christmas featured a big feed, gifts, and booze for all but those on watch. The fog disappeared, not so much lifting as draining into the sea, revealing enough icebergs that the open water available to Gertsen and his officers appeared as rivers between mountains. Bird waxed mythological, referring to the situation as Scylla and Charybdis times a thousand. In Homer's Odyssey, Scylla and Charybdis were monsters guarding either side of the Straits of Messina, 
and Odysseus had to choose which to pass nearer. Avoiding Charybdis places you nearer Scylla, and vice versa. So to find yourself between Scylla and Charybdis is to face the horns of a dilemma or exist between the devil and the deep blue sea, an idiom referring to the lowest deck or devil of a multi-deck vessel. Whichever way you face, you're fucked. Poulter began dropping corked bottles over the side carrying mimeographed messages featuring the location and date of release and requesting the finder contact the expedition with the location and date of finding, hoping to garner some information about the currents operating in the region. A gale, presaged by the Cape Pigeons gradually flying higher until they kept well clear of the mastheads, something I'll watch for in future sea voyages south, rose up on Boxing Day and the ship worked hard to keep clear of wreck-worthy obstacles and even with the wind speeds exceeding 50 knots, the reformed fog held as a considerable hindrance to navigation. Gale-generated swell added to the fun, with the ship's screw regularly rising clear of the water and vibrating violently as it oversped in response to the decrease in resistance. Water in the starboard oil tanks found its way to the burner nozzles and put the fires out, and while Engineer Queen quickly identified the problem and switched to the port tanks and got the fires up again, the resulting loss in steam pressure exacerbated the already dangerous situation. 24 hours of tension in the gale subsided on the 27th as the winds dropped and the ship regained what performance the contaminated fuel cost. Commodore Geertsen, unwilling to give up his place on the bridge while the ship faced ice, steered on to the southwest, pushing the Rupert into a big blank space on the charts, but dense pack pulled him up on the 29th. Gjertsen took a rest and the ship hove to at its most easterly position, 69 degrees, 12 minutes south, 116 degrees, 42 minutes west. Seipel put out in a boat to hunt seals and disappeared from view in the fog, the ship's horn recalling him and his companions as snow set in. The men aboard the Rupert began to exhibit signs of toastiness after their extended stay in this gloomy and dangerous realm. An attempt to get the Condor airborne again on New Year's Day saw all efforts come to nothing as, at first, the tender sprang a leak and all emergency gear received a soaking before it could be loaded aboard the aircraft, and then when the bottom fell out of the barometer, and Haynes declared flying out of the meteorological question. With the Condor already afloat and fueled up, Bird allowed it to stay on the water overnight. Swan and Schlossback receiving the unenviable responsibility of taking turns standing on the pontoons and fending off loose ice as the plane rode to leeward of the Rippert at the end of a long cable. With conditions worsening in the morning light, but the aircraft too heavy to crane back aboard, 150 gallons of fuel were jettisoned into the sea, and the Condor returned to its nest. A flight on the 3rd of January in poor visibility revealed even less than the Condor's first outing. The low cloud ceiling forced June to keep below 400 feet, rendering the drift indicator measurements inconclusive. Bird tried using smoke grenades as a means to make up on the missing navigational information, but the first one failed to ignite when it landed on an iceberg, and a second one, held onto until the burn it gave Bird's hand, gave a guarantee the fusing did its job, still failed to provide the needed plume of wind-affected smoke when it reached the sea surface. A southern horizon black with snowstorm clouds prompted June to turn north, as far as Bird's navigation and the lack of sun allowed, trying to find the ship 
and still they sighted no land. The airspeed indicator quit when the Venturi driving the instrument clogged with ice, forcing June to rely on the sound and feel of the aircraft to judge its speed. Ice formed on the wings, adding weight and ruining the Condor's already ruinous aerodynamic characteristics. Flying low to try to find warmer air placed the whole ensemble in danger of coming to grief on an iceberg, many of which reached hundreds of feet into the air. Visibility dropped as the weather deteriorated and as ice formed on the cockpit glazing. Bolin relieved June at the yoke and soon yanked that control to his chest as a large iceberg loomed into view. The Condor barely made it over. After finding the ship, landing in what open water they could find and getting Crane back on board, no one felt especially inclined to push the aviation agenda in anything other than perfect conditions, though Bird ordered that they linger on the site for a day to see if such perfection should fall their way. It didn't, and late on the 4th of January, the Rippert began the long slog to extricate itself from the narrow leads, large bergs and near-constant fogs of the Devil's Graveyard. Two days of steaming through the fogs and dodging the bergs, every exposed surface oozing condensation, and the dogs wet through with it. Bird received radio-telegraphic word that the Wyatt Earp, carrying Hubert Wilkins, Lincoln Ellsworth, and Little American traitors Bernd Balkin, Carl Brathen, and Dr. Coman, and their shiny Northrop Gamma, lay moored up in the Bay of Wales. For a third time, Bird faced competition from the dogged and competent Sir Hubert, the Gamma, its performance an as-yet-unknown quantity but likely a carefully thought-out and designed product of Balkan and Brathen's collaboration with Jack Northrop, whose previous work included the Lockheed Vega, was likely to embarrass even the best possible efforts of the propeller-hobbled and aerodynamically pants Condor. Balkan and Brathen skied to Little America, and where Bird writes in Discovery over awaiting their report with, quote, inexpressible eagerness, unquote, I'll bet a donut he was cursing out Balkan for all that his polite Virginian vocabulary could manage. Ungrateful Scandinavian turncoat. After all I let him do for me. Word did come in from the other expedition, regardless of how Bird felt about their presence in what he thought of as his turf, by which I mean Antarctica as a whole. Little America is as you left it, with planes in good condition except for digging out. Radio masts okay, but tremendous pressure shows in front of Versemer, making it impassable for dog teams. Docked 12 miles from Little America, no sign of thawing this summer. Perhaps goaded by the presence of the Wyatt Earp at the Bay of Wales, Bird began preparing for another flight in the Condor, intending to fly down the 152nd West Meridian to find the as yet unseen coast in that region, before turning west to follow the continental margin to land offshore of Little America and exert his presence on goings on there. Showing not the least concern about the potential arrival of this popinjay, Wilkins and Ellsworth offered to provide regular local meteorological reports in support of the outing. Those that came through as the William Horlick flew over the Rupert, calibrating its compass, indicated against the proposed flight plan, the Bay of Wales gradually becoming increasingly socked in. Still eager to make the southing and spot the coast, Bird ordered the Condor loaded with a full quotient of fuel, emergency equipment, food and sledges, and two dogs for good measure, 
choosing two of the Quebec-sourced Chambouls, muscular, powerful beasts, the largest of the dog contingent weighing in at 90 pounds each. These brutes, spooked by the noise and violence of the takeoff run, broke free of their crates and tore up and down the Condor's fuselage until spent, nearly destroying Peterson's radio equipment in their desperate attempt to find an exit. June returned the machine to the water and the support boat took the shaken dogs back to the ship. When the flight finally got underway, the Condor could only reach 71 degrees south before Haynes advised of a drastic change in the weather, looming over the ship, which forced the aviators north, robbed for the third time of the opportunity to sight a previously unsighted coast. On the 12th, Bird received the news, likely with no small degree of relief, of damage done to Ellsworth Northrop Gamma, the polar star, by the treacherous bay ice, and the Rupert and the Wyatt Earp passed one another unseen on their reciprocal paths through the Ross Sea. In spite of the Polar Legion being something Ellsworth cooked up for self-aggrandisement, and seeing as it comprised only two people following Amundsen's death, Bird takes care to mention his membership of that dead-end folly in his account of the expedition, because of course he would, because he was Richard Bird. It was about this time Bird offered Poulter the position of second in command. Poulter tried to demur, figuring more experienced men such as June or Seipel should hold that position. Bird deemed June too fond of booze and Seipel too young for the responsibility. Poulter accepted the role with some reluctance. The final run to the Bay of Wales posed new challenges for the Rupert and the 17 departments of the expedition each made ready for disembarkation. Skis replaced the William Horlicks floats. Instruments and sampling gear used throughout the voyage went back into their crates. Material in the hold received labels, absolutely necessary, necessary and least necessary, to determine their order at the derricks and gangways. The barrier came in sight on the 17th of January. And with Bird arriving back in the Bay of Wales, I think we'll leave him there until next episode. Signing off this episode, I'm saying hi to Egoism. I found my jam for the Austral Summer 2019-2020. Whenever I go to sea, I find a song that will help me stay calm and focused in the face of the challenges intensely social situations place on an introvert and listen the fuck out of it. I jam my headphones in my ears anytime I'm not obliged to communicate with others and hit repeat on whatever listening device I'm using. I'll leave it to you to work out what this says about my wiring, but it worked wonders, and I experience less stress when I have my musical Linus blanket as a pocket-born go-to. The clouds, dimmer, the national, soul coughing, the models, Sarah Blasco, and something for Kate have all done me sterling service in this role. Listening to Triple J this week, I heard What Are We Doing by Egoism and just had to sit and ignore everything else going on around me until the last note. That's the song I'll have in my ears when I'm not driving a Zodiac, lecturing on Antarctic history or recording episodes of this series. And even then, I might try to cheat it into one ear at a low volume while I do all of those things. I got in touch with Egoism, and they're happy for me to let you hear some of the beauty they've brought into my world. That's What Are We Doing? Playing Me Out Now. 
Whichever band member I corresponded with applied to go south with an Artists in Antarctica program, but didn't get selected. I encouraged them to keep trying, as Antarctica warrants representation in music as much as in photographs, paintings and literature. And if Aunt Jade Duvicott is still listening to the series, I hope she's still on the case too. Take care and appreciate your coffee.